Amen. Y'all give it up for Jared. Thank you so much, Jay. So good. Hey, well, good evening and welcome to Salt Company. My name is Rudy Hartman, and if this is your first or time here, or if it's your fourth year with us, we're really, really glad that you're here. I do get to open the text with you this evening, John chapter 6. We're going to hop right to it. Uh, but you might have seen one of these on your chairs as you walked in. These are little trading cards for our series. I'm kidding. No, this is going to help you. Uh, to kind of lock into the I am statements that we're looking at, the, the claims, the statements. We'll have one of these each week for you. Uh, Zay did a great job putting those together. But we are starting this I am statement series of Jesus, where Jesus says who he is uh, six different times in different ways. And, and, and it's a wonderful thing that he does. In case you were curious, we don't get to decide who Jesus is. Jesus tells us who he is which is really good news because it means we don't have to guess who he is. We just get to see it. It's such a gift as we open the text. Um, but before we go too far, I, I wonder, I just got a quick question. Does anyone in the room like to cook? Microwaves to marinade. Oh, wow, okay. What do you like to cook? What do you like to cook? What do you like to cook? Say it out loud. You can. Potatoes? Okay, no, we're doing this right now. Okay, best way, yell it out. Best way to prepare potatoes right now. Mash. The air fryer? Oh, bougie. I love it up front. Healthy. I mean, healthy. Not whatever. Everyone has an air fryer. I mean, of course. I knew that. Salad. A little potato salad, actually. Okay, who else likes to cook? Who else likes... Oh, normal salad? Potatoes on normal salad? Oh, just normal salad. Oh, yeah. That's not cooking. What? I love it. No, that's good. You're crushed. <laughs> Cass is awesome. Okay, someone over here. Who likes to cook? Who likes to cook? Who likes to cook? I saw it. Jared, you already talked. I'm just kidding. Hey, you, what, what's your name? Levi. E. Levi. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you like to cook? Enchiladas? Oh, man. I'm going to hang out with you sometime. That's incredible. I love enchiladas. Okay, okay, sorry. I could, we could do this for a long time. I, um, I also really like to cook spices, seasoning, butter. Anyone thank God for butter? Amen and amen, right? Right? I just love butter. So good. All right. So uh, <laughs> I lost everybody. No. Last year, last year I turned 30 years old. I know I've been asked by so many people. This is to no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is this is also to discourage you from asking me what I'm studying, which has happened a couple times. Um, but all right, okay. Um, but at 30 years old, not sure if you knew this. As a man at 30 years old, you're contractually obligated to either get really into World War II or start smoking meat. I don't make the rules. It's just like. Just what it is. No, I'm kidding. But, but I, so I started, uh, I started smoking meat. I, uh, I actually um, picked up a, a gas grill and converted it into a smoker and then did it again and then did it again and then decided to just bite the bullet and buy a smoker. And guys, I love smoking different types of meats. I can make chicken. I can make, this is wild. Where are you? <laughs> Dude, I like chicken, I'll make carnitas, I'll make you cry, but the, the thing that I crush, guys, the thing that you come over, 2506 Westbrook, come through, and like, and I'll make you some ribs, I'll make you some ribs, on the 3-2-1 method, I'm going to put you on game real quick, 3-2-1 method for smoking ribs right now, uh, three hours just out, you got to let it, you got to brine it, you got to pat the ribs dry, you got to put mustard on as the binding, don't use olive oil, use mustard, mustard as the binding, and then a thick layer of seasoning that you make your don't use the store-bought 
stuff, just go to babish.com. Like, check out Babish's stuff. It's so good. Um, and you just get to, like, make your own seasoning, put it on there. Then you put it on the smoker for three hours. I got a little app. I set it for 220 degrees, and I don't touch it for three hours. I go do something else. I come back. I take it out. I flip it upside down. You put a little bit of, check this out, apple juice on it. Yo, I'm giving you the secrets right now. You wrap it in aluminum foil for two hours with a little bit of like space for steam to get out. You let it boil, broil basically in that for two hours and then you flip it back. During that two hours, if your wife lets you, if Molly lets me, because making barbecue sauce is a little bit messy and smells at first, but you make your own barbecue sauce with the seasoning rub that you made yourself. You put it on those ribs and then you put them back in for one more hour, six hours on one rack of ribs and I will make you weep. I love... <laughs> I love getting makers. So I've made ribs about 15 different times. Um, and each of those times, I, I can say all that because each of those times someone has asked me that I've been making them for, hey, how do you do that? Like, how, how did you do this? And I tell them exactly like that, like just that excited. Um, but here's what, here's what I've learned every time that I've explained it. I learned that that explanation of how I made ribs never filled anybody's empty stomach that knowing how I made them never satisfied anybody's hunger. I love the recipe, but on its own, it's never filled or satisfied anybody. What do you need to actually be filled and satisfied? Ribs, food, like, okay, ribs, yes. Okay, but you need food, right? A recipe is a really good thing, but it's no substitute for food. A recipe by itself will leave you hungry and empty. It's never filled anybody. Food does that. It's never satisfied anybody. Food does that. You need food. And tonight in our text, Jesus is actually going to use the picture of bread, of food, to help us understand what it means to believe in him. That idea of belief, that's what he's teasing out in our text. Jesus teaches us something so critical about belief that is tragically overlooked. The reality of this oversight is that it leads so many Christians to falling into a disposition of belief or a paradigm of life with God that actually leaves you hungry and empty when you know it should leave you full and satisfied. And Jesus actually teaches us how belief in him can leave us spiritually, soulishly, vitally satisfied. The problem is not with Jesus. It's often about the way that we think about him. We've been taught about him. We, the disposition we have towards him, our paradigm of believing in him that actually leaves us hungry and empty. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I'm super glad that you're here tonight, but this actually might be the reason why you've not taken that leap into following Jesus. Because you look at the way he's been presented to you by people, or you look at some people around you and you think they look hungry and empty. Christian, you're here tonight and you follow Jesus, but if you're honest, you have these moments when it feels like your life is just so empty. You have this insatiable hunger and you don't know what to do. And then at the same time, you feel this guilt because you're like, Jesus is supposed to be enough, but he's supposed to fill me. He's supposed to satisfy me, but you still feel empty and hungry. So how do you actually be filled? How can you be satisfied? Let me get this out of the way right now. The answer is not believe harder, okay? If you've ever heard that, I'm sorry. Like, I don't even know what that means. I have a master's degree in this. I don't know what that means, okay? I don't know what believing harder means. It's not the answer to this. It's actually something completely different. How can you be filled? How can you be satisfied? Can I tell you why it's the case that you maybe feel a little bit empty, a little bit hungry? It's likely because the picture that you have of believing in Jesus is looking at him like he is a recipe. Like he's something that you have to figure out. 
that you look at them and you're like, I've got to put this whole thing together. I've got to cook this. So it's a little dash of Bible study and it's a little pinch of prayer and it's a little less sin and a little less distraction from him, a little less temptation. Whatever it is, belief feels like a recipe that you have to figure out. And at the, at the heart of the problem is this, is that that means it's about you and not about him. Now, don't get this twisted. Jesus does give a recipe. He gives a picture of what it looks like to follow him, a pathway to the flourishing life of following after the way of Jesus, to living into the life of Jesus. It's just not all that he gives. And when we think that that's all that he gives, when we think that Jesus is just a recipe, we always will end up hungry and empty because the recipe's never filled anybody. But I've got excellent news for you, Salt Company. Jesus in our text tonight does not say, I am a recipe. He says, I am the bread. He says, I am the bread. I'm not a recipe for you to figure out. I'm a satisfying savior for you to love. I'm not giving you a recipe. I'm giving you myself. That's what Jesus is saying. So note takers, top of the page, this is for you. This is what Jesus is saying tonight. He's saying that all who recognize their need for him and believe in him can come to him and be satisfied by him. This is an incredible promise from Jesus. But if you, if you look at Jesus as a recipe, you will miss out on experiencing him as bread. If your belief in Jesus looks like treating him like a recipe instead of coming to him as bread, there will always be those gaps of hunger and emptiness. Or when they sneak up on you in those moments and those stretches of time that feel hungry, feel empty, feel difficult, you won't know what to check in on on your life and on how you're following after him. But Jesus today teaches us some critical paradigm shifts that must take place if we're to truly believe in him and experience him as our bread. If you see this tonight, it will have the power to completely transform the way that you follow after Jesus. It could completely transform the way that you understand and look at the, the sin in your life, and it will completely shift in the approach that you have to reading the Bible and praying from feeling difficult to perhaps being your favorite part of the day. So you ready for this? You ready? Okay, let's get it. John chapter six, verses 20 through 40. We're, starting, we're gonna start by looking at three paradigms that need to shift for us to see Jesus as bread. Um, and as we see this, we understand these points about he's making about what belief in him looks like through this metaphor. So just to set up the text, Jesus and his disciples have just fed thousands of people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He feeds them and then they leave and go to the other side of the sea. Those people come back the next morning, realize that Jesus hasn't stayed where he, they left him and they cross the sea as well to get over to the spot called Capernaum. The next day, the people Jesus fed go up to him, they find him and they start asking him questions. And in responding to these questions, Jesus will use what they're looking for, a meal, to teach them what it actually means to believe in him. Now, I'm gonna pause here, because I've said this a few times, but there's an interesting concept to dig out here, because why do they, on the, sea of, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, need to worry about believing in Jesus? I'm not looking at you and, say, and saying, hey, believe in me. You can see me, right? Like, you don't need, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to look at me and be like, I believe that Rudy is talking. That's just, the th it's happening right now. So why would Jesus be looking at them and, say, and teaching them about belief when they're face to face with him? What's going on here? Jesus isn't saying, believe that I exist. That's kind of silly. Actually, just to come at this for a second, no serious person with any respect for the process of determining historic events questions if Jesus existed. 
I had a student once tell me that his dad told him that Jesus never existed. And I was like, hey man, that's actually not up for debate. Like that's not a spiritual question. That's an academic historical one. It's, he, there was a historical Jesus. There was a man named Jesus that walked in the Fertile Crescent, the near Middle East in the first century uh, in this region. And, and he did incredible things. History records him. Other religions record him. He was, there was a historical Jesus. His existence isn't what's being put, pushed on in relation to their belief. Belief is actually a disposition of knowledge, trust, and reliance. Belief in Jesus is beyond just his simple existence and into his ontology, his being, his purpose, who he was, why he came, what he did. Belief says three things. Belief says, I know who you are, I trust what you say, and I rely on what you've done for me. I know who you are, I trust what you say, I rely on what you've done for me. That's belief, that's the definition. And that definition is simple enough but Jesus is actually getting at something more than a simple definition. He's coming for their neck and candidly ours in relation to our disposition of belief towards him. The problem with the people he's around is that their disposition of belief towards him was broken. And so, as the caring and skillful teacher that he was with the strength of being fully God and the relatability of being fully man, Jesus starts to engage with them to deal with their disposition of belief towards him. He comes after their practice of belief in him and he gets after three shifts. We see the first one in these first verses. John 6, 26. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I love this. Jesus is so dope. He, he, just, he just comes through and he, say, he cuts straight to it. And he, says, he, he looks at them and he says, yeah, uh, you're only here because you want something from me. You ever been in a relationship where you're just being used by the person you're in a relationship with? I don't feel so good. If you're in that relationship right now, by the way, let me step into my relationship series hat. Get out of it. Okay, um, back on. Uh, those relationships don't feel very good. But just to be clear, it's not bad to want something from Jesus. The problem is that that's all that they wanted. They didn't want him. They just wanted what he could give them. And he lets them know it. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus tells them straight up, you want something from me that's gonna fade away. He's looking at them and he's saying, you see me as the recipe to get what you want. This is the equation of their life. Me plus Jesus equals full stomach. That's all Jesus was to them. All he was was a variable in their equation, an ingredient in their recipe. And incredibly, Jesus says, I actually have something for you that's way better than what you're asking for. I have something that will fill you and satisfy you completely. I have food that endures to eternal life. And you might think that that would snap them out of their kind of formulaic, recipe-minded approach to Jesus. But remember, their disposition of belief is broken. Their paradigm is broken, so they double down. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're asking, how do we get that from you? How do, what do I have to do to get that from you? So they're still in this mentality of, I don't really want you, Jesus. I want that thing that you have. And Jesus, so patient with their questions, so inviting, so aware of their needs, responds in verse 29 and says, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. Here we are. Jesus has brought us right back to belief. 
believe in him, Jesus, whom he, God the Father, has sent. Jesus is saying that you want what endures to eternal life, what fills and satisfies you now and forever. If that's what you want, here's how you get it. Believe in me. Know me. Trust me. Rely on me to be your salvation and your satisfaction. And again, you think this might catch the mind of the people that he's talking to, but they doubled down on their broken paradigm again, and they challenged Jesus. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna that was in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They've gone right back to square one. They got something from him before. We want something from you now. Give us some bread. It's <laughs> wild. Okay, this is the most exposed they are. So let me just show you the paradigm that's being exposed here uh, when they're, with their disposition towards Jesus being off, where their paradigm is broken. They saw Jesus as useful, but not precious. They said, he's useful. You're useful to me, but you're not precious. Okay, nice. Um, you're a means to an end for the, he's a means to an end for them. And this has become so ingrained in them that they look back at an Old Testament story from Exodus where people were in the wilderness, hungry and empty, and God sent them manna to sustain them. Did you know that word manna literally means, what is this? They looked at the, the stuff on the ground, they said, what is this? And then they ate it. That's crazy. I don't like, like that's what, could you imagine doing that? I was like, could you imagine like the first time that someone, this is in my notes, could you imagine the first time that someone like saw an egg come out of a chicken and they were like, that, I'll put that in my mouth. Like that doesn't, that's just wild to me. They look at this man and they say, what is it? And then they eat it and it fills them. They ate it. It satisfied them. And here's the thing. That manna was enough for that day, every day. You had to go out and collect the manna every day, except for the day before the Sabbath. You would collect enough for two days so that you could actually rest on that day that God had set apart as holy. Now, this was supposed to teach the people that God was their sustainer, that he was their satisfaction, that they could trust him, rely on him, know him, believe in him to meet their needs, that he would protect them, he would lead them, guide them, save them, rescue them. It was intended to bring them to a point of saying, God is precious to me, that he's valuable. Look at all that he's done. Look at how he's loved us. Now all I want to do is love him back. God's provision for the people was intended to bring them to a place of belief where they said God is precious. But back then, in our story and still today, what happened is we categorize it as God is useful. So they look at Jesus and say, yeah, what sign are you going to do to prove that we can get what we want from you? That's the sign of manna our ancestors got. What's our sign, Jesus? How can we know that you'll give us what we want? Can you hear the threat in their voice? Give us bread, Jesus, or else. Or else we'll leave. Or else we'll get out. If you're not going to be useful for us, then we're not sticking around. Give me peace, Jesus, or else. Give me a relationship, Jesus, or else. They treated God like a gumball machine. Insert quarter, get gumball, check the box, move on. Transactional relationship, nothing else. God, give me what I want. Be useful. If that's your paradigm of belief... You miss out on the beauty of what it means for God to simply be precious to you. For him to be worthy of your worship and your attention in your life simply because of who he is. It betrays your belief. You believe so long as he's useful. 
And if you determine that he's no longer useful, you'll no longer believe. You'll or else God. As an aside, I'm really grateful that God doesn't treat us that way. <laughs> that God doesn't toss us away when we're not useful. He stays with us through the highs and the lows. He's just, he's just that good, right? Okay, back, back on. Jesus is dismantling their disposition of belief. They look at him as useful, but belief looks at Jesus and says, no, you're not simply useful, you're precious, you're beautiful, you're worthy, you're good. So Jesus keeps going, verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I love Jesus. He's just so good at teaching. Check this out. The, the first thing Jesus does is he corrects their understanding of the story. He says, hey, it wasn't Moses that gave you that bread. It was God. He provided, he sustained, he satisfied. He says, my father, incredible language to use there, uh, contextually to this time and as we interpret it today, he's saying, my father, who is God, because I'm also God, is the one who provided true bread from heaven and gives true life to the world. Jesus has identified and isolated what they find precious. They want this bread, they want this life, they want what God provides, so they ask him for it. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now Jesus has got them. They saw Jesus as useful, as a means to an end of getting that bread, and so Jesus looks them square in the eye and says in verse 35, that's what you want from me? Okay, listen up, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He says, I'm what you want. I'm what you've been looking for. I'm what you've been longing for. They say, Jesus, give us what we want. And he says, okay, here I am. That's what he does. See, Jesus did not come into the world to assist you in meeting the desires you already had before you knew who he was. He came to change your desires so that he would be the main one, so that he would be precious so that you would look at the one who lived the perfect life you could never live, die the death on the cross that you deserved, rise again from the grave, so that you might be freed, forgiven of your sin, and invited into new life with Jesus now and into eternity forever. That in him you would actually find what you are looking for, life with God now and life with God into eternity. I'm looking for peace, good news, he's the Prince of Peace. I'm looking for help, good news, he's the savior of the world. I'm looking for guidance, good news, he's the way, the truth, and the life. So just a couple questions. Is Jesus useful for you or is he just, or is he precious? What would happen if Jesus became more and more precious to you? What would your life look like if he was the most precious thing to you? What if belief in Jesus isn't about looking at him and simply saying he's useful, but actually understanding that he's precious? You'd probably say something like, well, for him to be precious, I'd have to know him. A concept isn't precious. An idea isn't precious. But Jesus isn't a concept or an idea. He was a person, which actually exposes the second paradigm that needs to be shifted from a useful to precious and from looking at Jesus, looking at belief in Jesus as a concept to a relationship. The, these next words from Jesus are really interesting. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. You've seen me, but you don't believe in me. You know stuff about me, but you don't know me. 
There's a massive difference between those two things. Just take my wife, Molly, for example. Anybody in this room can know her resume. She's incredible. She got her bachelor's from Iowa State. Don't falter for that. Um, she led worship at the Salt Company in Ames for a few years. She got her master's. She helped plant two churches. She's married to a schmuck, all of these different things. Um, all of that is resume. It's just facts. Anybody can know that. That's a concept. Relationship's different. On Tuesday night, we went out to, for a date night to the Globe. I love the Globe, y'all, it's so good. Um, and as soon as the food was served, I looked over at her plate and I said, oh, there's peas, I'll eat those. Okay, if you don't know Molly, like if you don't really know Molly, if you never shared a meal with Molly before, that sentence makes no sense. <laughs> but I've been in a relationship with her for seven years. My wife does not like peas, okay? Like, I know that. Why? Because I've been around her. She's not a concept to me. She's my wife. I'm her husband. It's a relationship. I'm trying to get my PhD in Molly. Like, I just want to, like, know her more and more and more. That's what that looks like to be in a relationship. And Jesus is saying, you see me, you know stuff about me, but you don't know me. You're not with me. That's how so many people categorize belief. I just need to know more stuff about Jesus. That's not bad, not at all. It's just not everything. You don't just need to know more about him. You need to know him relationally, to take time with his words in the scripture, take time with him in prayer, to take time because that's what builds relationships, time. Okay, if I got permission to do this, can I just, can I just go on a launch pad for just a second, just get this off my chest? Have you ever heard someone say that following Jesus, it's not a religion, it's a relationship? Raise your hand if you ever heard somebody say that. A couple people in the room, all right. I don't have any problem with that phrase at all, just so long as you understand that a religion is way easier than a relationship. It is so much easier to be a part of a religion than it is to actually build a relationship. Here's religion. Check the box, show up, leave, do just enough that's required, and go through the motions and hope for the best. Here's the problem. That will always leave you hungry and empty. Always. Relationship is better, but you better believe it's a little bit harder than that. Relationship takes time, attention, and focus. It is wild. Sometimes when people say it's not a religion, it's a relationship, I know what they think about following Jesus, and it makes me nervous about all their other relationships. I'm like, how do you treat other people if this is how you treat Jesus? Or perhaps more nervously to say you have a relationship with Jesus, that you understand everything that he's done and everything that he is. You compare it to the other relationships that you have and you realize that more of your time, energy, and attention, the building blocks of relationship are dedicated to every other relationship more than to Jesus who gets the scraps, if anything. In case you're curious, this is what relationship with Jesus looks like on his end. It's incredible. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And check this out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will never push away. He will never cast off. You go read any interaction in the Bible between Jesus and someone who comes to him, and you'll see that this is true. Anytime anyone ever came to them, he, to him, he did not push them away. He drew them close, deeper relationship, more time, more uh, intimacy with them and him. Not just knowing a resume, but knowing him, what he likes, what he doesn't like, knowing who he is. And knowing Jesus shapes a deep desire in us to actually continue to know him more, which brings us to our third paradigm, apathy and desire. If you treat Jesus with apathy, 
you can be sure that there's something broken in the paradigm of your belief. Just think about these words that end this text from Jesus when Jesus says in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in five words. God saves sinners through Jesus. It's what he does. It's what he talks about right here. I will give them life. I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus saves and gives eternal life. He fills the empty and satisfies the hungry. He's the only way. And every single person who comes to him are welcomed and are saved. That is incredible. That is wonderful. That is precious. His love for all of those who would come to him, draw them closer, welcome them in, and save them for all time. Which means, simply, that if you were apathetic towards Jesus, it is just because you haven't seen his love for you yet. You've not, in Jesus' words, looked upon the Son and believed in him. I'm not talking about a moment of apathy. I'm not talking about a period of time. I'm talking about a baseline attitude towards Jesus of apathy, that Jesus is a take it or leave it thing for you. If that's you, the answer why that is is simple. You've just not yet seen his love for you. But when you see his love for you, when you see it through his life, through his death on the cross, through the resurrection, apathy melts away and in its place is desire. Here's what happens. You will see the love of Jesus and you will desire to love him back and to love those around you with the same love that he loved you with first. Can I say that again? It's a pretty good sentence. I'm, I'm gonna pat myself on the back for that one, okay. You see the love of Jesus and you desire to love him back and you love those around you with the same love that he loved you with first. This is Jesus, the bread of life, not simply a recipe. So let me sum up these two paradigms, recipe and bread. Recipe says believing in Jesus is a useful concept that I could take or leave. Bread says believing in Jesus looks like a precious relationship that I desire to live in. Jesus' desire for us is to experience him, not in some simply useful or else way, not as a concept, not as something you could take or leave, but to know him as the savior who's precious, who the one that you can actually know and the one that you actually desire. So with all that in mind, two final thoughts and then I'm gonna take my seat. Two thoughts, uh, daily bread and dead bread. First, dead bread. If Jesus is just a recipe for you, if he's just useful, just some concept, just treated apathetically, you will always feel empty and hungry in relation to him. Not because of him, not because he's not enough, but because of this paradigm that exists in you that, that is preventing you from actually coming to him as bread. It's like you're saying you're hungry, you're being shown a pantry full of food, and you're saying, nope, that's not for me. But you're still hungry. So your appetite remains. And instead of turning to the bread of life, you turn to dead bread. You turn to something to fill you in the meantime, knowing that it won't fill you forever. It's so easy to run to sin, which in turn causes us to run away from Jesus. But when you see Jesus as bread, two things happen. He welcomes you to himself and saves you as you come to him. And, and the second thing is this, your appetite begins to change over time as you come to him. 
if belief in Jesus starts to look like a precious relationship that you desire to live in, as you, as the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good, your appetite will start to change. Dead bread won't taste as good. And when you taste it, you'll know that's not the real thing. That's not the thing that I'm looking for. And when you come to him, you can actually trade your dead bread for daily bread. You come to him as daily bread, you trade dead bread for daily bread and you watch your appetite change. As your belief in Jesus shifts from recipe to bread, your practices shift along with your belief. It means that when you open up your Bible, it's not just some useful concept you could take or leave. You open your Bible to read the word of God that reveals Jesus, that shows him as a little more precious, builds a relationship just a little bit more, strengthens your desire to be with him just a little bit more. It means that as you pray, it's not this distant checklist drudgery of a task, but it's you getting to talk with and be with the one who is precious, the one you desire, the one that says if you come to him, he won't push you away. Daily bread, just enough for today until you come back again tomorrow to see him, know him, and come to him as your bread of life all over again, to enjoy that all over again, to be satisfied by him all over again. Here's where all this starts. It starts with a three-word confession. I need you. Those who know they're needy will treat bread differently than people who think they're already full. Bread becomes precious, desired. It is life. It is treasured because you know that you need it. Jesus is the bread of life. Wherever you're at, you can actually come to him today. This could be your first moment or 4,000th moment of coming to him and looking at him and saying, Jesus, I, I need you. You come to him, he won't push you away. You come to him, he'll fill you and satisfy you. You come to him, he will save and sustain you forever. You can come to him, Jesus, who is the bread I want to give you a moment just to respond. So if you just close your eyes, bow your heads, just for focus and, and concentration. We're not going to ask you to stand up, move around. We're not going to ask you to do anything like that. No one's going to come over to you. I just want to give you a moment to respond privately. Just right here. Zay, you and the band can come up. If you're here and you're not a Christian, your I need you might look like this. Jesus, I need you to be my savior. I need you to save me from my sin. I keep running to dead bread. It's not filling me. It's not enough. It's leading me away from you. I, I keep having this idea that you're just useful. Or you're just some concept. Or you're way over there and I could take it or leave it. But, but Jesus, I actually need you. You could come to him and put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior tonight. You can believe with your mouth, confess in your heart that Jesus rose from the grave and you will be saved. You don't have to wait until you're all together. You can just in this moment right now just whisper those words I need you Jesus I need you I need you if you're not a Christian that might be how you respond but if you are a Christian you may also need to say I need you 